As Kevin alluded to earlier, is that we're part of something bigger. That I was actually over at Friends Orange, who was also planted out of Friends Your Belinda just a few years ago. And, and even this morning, even this morning, we saw, we saw 10 people respond to the message of Jesus and, and, and come to faith. And I share that with you because, again, you and we are a part of something bigger. We are part of a movement of churches. We are part of a movement of, of people in God's kingdom in Orange County and beyond that, that is, is seeing a ripple effect in the relationships, in the families, in the communities that we live. So again, really excited to be with, here, uh, be with you here tonight as we finish off our series on momentum, which is on the first century church in the book of Acts. So before we dive into it, if you would bow your heads in a word of prayer with me, I'd appreciate it. God in heaven, we are here to glorify your name. We're here to give you worship, to dwell in your presence richly, and to experience the love, the power, and the truth that is found in Jesus alone. We thank you for this time that we could spend together and focusing upon you and pray that you would shine through, Father. Teach us from your word tonight uh, that it would not be my words but yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Anyone see, uh, or any, any Avengers fans out there? Who, who likes the Avengers movie? We got some people, okay, we got some real fired up people here. We like the Avengers. All right, so I have a four and a six-year-old that plays soccer. I have a wife that typically goes to bed between 8.30 and 9 o'clock. So I largely have forgotten what the inside of a movie theater looks like uh, and did not see Endgame in the theaters. But about two weeks ago, I had a, had a kind of free night where I was more laid back and I got to rent on my Apple TV, Endgame. Fantastic movie, really enjoyed it. Ends on a, on a sad note. For those of you who haven't seen it, look, I can only apologize so much. There's a statue of limitations on spoiler alerts. So Robert Downey Jr., uh, Tony Stark dies, okay? Iron Man gives his life uh, for, for a greater cause. So I'm sorry if that spoiled it for any of you. But as we look at Tony Stark, as we look at Iron Man and all the Avengers and all these heroes with incredible skill, incredible might, and how they, they sacrifice themselves for the greater good, for this greater cause, we, we call them heroes. And, and that's what they are. Certainly, Tony Stark giving his life to defeat Thanos and save the universe is a heroic act. But tonight, tonight I want to look at kind of the, the alternate heroes in these stories because there are those heroes, the, the, the Avengers, if you will, the superheroes that have incredible skill, incredible superpowers. I think most of them are not ironically very good looking as well. And so they, they make these sacrifices. They make these sacrifices, even sacrifice in their very lives. But there's others, there's alternate heroes, as I would say, alternative heroes that also make great sacrifice in the midst of this. And so Pepper Potts was, was Tony Stark's better half and in fact there was there was one point during the movies where she looks at tony and says and all this is going on it's the avengers right so there's tons they're just cataclysmic things happening left right and center and she asks him tony are we going to be okay and tony looks at her and says pepper you're in a relationship with me things are never going to be okay and so the idea is that she sacrificed greatly just as tony and iron man if you will sacrificed his life there were great sacrifices made by, by Pepper Potts and those, those, those who were left behind after some give their lives for great causes. And I share that, or I begin there, 
with that tonight because it's, it's a parallel to another story that I wanted to share with you that has inspired a generation of, of Christians. And it's, it's the story of Jim Elliott. This happened over 60 years ago. Jim Elliott was born in, in 1927 in Portland, Oregon. He was born into a Christian household. His parents took him to church and instilled Christian values in him. And when he was 25, in, in 1952, at the age of 25, he sensed God's call to be a missionary. He sensed God's call to, to go overseas and show the good news of Jesus with people that hadn't yet heard. And specifically, God was calling Jim to the Orani people of Ecuador, who were like the unreached of the unreached. They were known as a particularly violent, particularly hostile tribe to any outsiders and people that they did not recognize. So they were a very, very difficult people group to reach. But that's exactly who Jim Elliott was called to. And so they, they raised their support. They moved down to Ecuador, he and his wife Elizabeth, and they began trying to do ministry. They actually began flying in, kind of parachuting in into the jungle and just trying to kind of make themselves known to the Orani tribe and just being seen by them and everything. And they were finding that it was, it was kind of tough, that they weren't seeing the kind of results, the co- sort of relationships and comfort that they wanted. So what he decided with the uh, with three other missionaries, was to set up base camp at a creek, kind of a, a river, really, that was very near to where the Orani village was, where they came for water, so that they would see them on a regular basis, they would begin to recognize them and get comfortable with them, so that they could eventually build a relationship and share the gospel. So they did. They set up base camp just on the other side of this creek from the Orani tribe, and They were having some interactions with them, at least from afar, that Jim was very encouraged by. In fact, he sent letters back to his wife, Elizabeth, who I believe was living in the capital city at that time of Quito, and he was sharing with her that things are going well. We seem to be making some inroads here and starting to gain some comfort level with these tribal people, or so he thought. But on on January 8th, 1956, a group of about 10 Orani tribesmen came at night and crossed the creek and actually engaged Jim along with his fellow missionaries in a bit of a skirmish. And Jim and the other, his three companions were tragically killed and and murdered by the Orani people. And this was very sad, very tragic, undoubtedly. However, for Jim, as we get to know him a little further, and they actually looked back and read some of his journals that drew him to the ministry. I mean, this was, a, this was worldwide news, that he in no way, shape, or form considered this a waste. In fact, as they went back to his journal, they found one of his quotes that ended up being his most famous quote, where he says this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep the things of this world that we so often run after that really we cannot take with us, giving those up to gain what we cannot lose, the things of God, the eternal things of God, which cannot be touched, which cannot be taken by anything or anyone in this world. And so Jim counted the cost, and he was worth his entire life living for this, this cause of Christ that was greater than himself. But as I shared with Pepper and Tony Jim was not the only one who made a sacrifice here. He, he, he gave up his life, but there was someone else who made an incredibly great sacrifice, and that was those that were left behind, particularly his widow, Elizabeth. 
And she was left to raise their family and to continue on without Jim. And she could have, she could have had a pity party for herself and felt sorry. And I mean, this was, this was a tragedy. This was a huge loss for her, undoubtedly. Could have shook her fist at God. God, we served you. We came to Ecuador, essentially for us, the other side of the world, to bring the good news of Jesus to these people. And this, this is more or less how you repay us, that, that in this tragedy that my husband dies, this is unfair. What, what, what are you doing, God? And, and shook her fist at God. But Elizabeth didn't choose to do that. Instead, Elizabeth chose to dive in and, and lean into God further amidst this incredible tragedy, tragedy and to continue on, in fact, continue on the work that her husband had begun. There was a quote that she made that I think really well exemplifies her response to this tragedy. She says this, this hard place in which you perhaps find yourself is the very place in which God is giving you the opportunity to look only to him, to spend time in prayer and to learn long-suffering gentleness, meekness. In short, to learn the depths of the love that Christ himself has poured out on all of us. And by her incredible faith, choosing to lean into God and allow him to do what he wanted to do. She went back a couple months later and she re-engaged with some other people around her. She re-engaged the Irani people. And it wasn't but a few years till she got to see the, the harvest that Jim began and the entirety of that tribe came to faith in Jesus and were converted to Christianity because she chose in the midst of tragedy and suffering not to give up, not to walk away from God, but to realize that we are not promised ease of life, but we are promised that which is good, that which is better in this life than that is only found in the presence of of Jesus and by following and seeking after him. So Jim, Jim died for Jesus, but Elizabeth gave her life for Jesus. And that's the idea that I want us to consider tonight because as Jim and Elizabeth understood full well that there is something greater being offered us if we will lay down the circumstances, however good, however bad they may be, and seek after God and God alone in his presence and the person of Jesus, there is more offered to us. There is more offered to us. And they were a perfect example of kind of our, our, our capstone. Uh, it's really a hymn, but it's more of a battle cry that Christians have said for years and that, that this, this talk is based upon. And that's simply this cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. And so that, that brings us perfectly into our passage for tonight as we look at Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and the, how they counted the cost. This is exactly what we see in Peter and John as we finish off our series in Acts in Acts chapter 4. So those of you who have your Bibles can turn to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have one, you can follow along on the screens or we have Bibles for you available in the back. And if you don't have a Bible at home, this is our gift to you. So you can raise your hand or look back and one of the ushers can make sure that you get a Bible before you leave tonight. But Peter and John, Acts chapter 4, last week we looked at very apropos, Acts chapter 3, where they went to the temple. Peter and John went to the temple as they always did, and they saw a lame beggar who was asking for money, and they looked at him, saw, and God did a, a mighty miracle through them, and this beggar who had been uh, unable to walk, disabled for 40 years, picked up his mat 
and he walked, and everyone was astonished. And so we pick it up in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, where Peter and John kind of are, are brought before the Sanhedrin, or the religious officials, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, to give an account of this miracle that, that God had done through them. So we pick it up in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? By what power or what name did you do this? So first and foremost... Peter and John are sitting there, don't even get an attaboy or like, hey, that's pretty cool, that guy got healed. No, before they could even blink, they were being dragged by the religious officials into jail for the night, into jail for the night. And so they're put in jail, they're, they're brought out the next day and brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was simply religious officials in Jerusalem at that time, so it would have included the high priest, other priests that were kind of in the ruling class, as well as some elders of of the people that were very prominent it was a group of about 71 men and being in in jerusalem being jewish this was a theocracy a a government by god within jerusalem within the, the nation of israel and so they had all the power these these religious officials had all the power and so they were bringing them before the the highest of the high in their society and as they bring them before the Sanhedrin, before this, these religious officials, that question, that question is so telling about the attitude of these religious officials. By whose, by whose power did you do this? In whose name did you do Hey, how did you, how did you manage that? And more importantly, who is going to get the credit for this miracle, who, in a group of officials that is, has now been more or less obsessed with their positions of power and their own prestige, has made serving God more about their role in society and their power and, and influence that they have than actually seeking after God. And so all they're concerned about is how'd you do that? Who gets the credit for it? Who gets the influence? Who gets the power and the position? Because if it's not us, we have a problem with that. Those that should have known full well, should have known much better, turned seeking after God, turned a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus into something else. It's, the simple idea is this, that they made seeking after Jesus not just about Jesus, but Jesus and. Jesus and. And far too many of those who follow Christ fall into the same trap that yes oh yes I want the salvation in Jesus he sounds great I'm all about Jesus and faith in God and being a Christian and everything yes but I also like some of this stuff too there's a few things in this world that I kind of like to hang on to that I like that I may not want to give up if God were to ask me to I don't know what that looks like for you, but there's a lot of different Jesus ands that we can fall into and miss 
Jesus and what he's calling us to in the first place. Jesus and maybe a wealthy, comfortable life. Jesus and vanity and obsession with how I look and how I dress and how I'm seen by other people. Jesus and control of my life and my time and getting what I want to do when I want to do it. Jesus and only getting to interact with the people that are easy to love, easy to care for and build relationship with, as opposed to avoiding those that are a little bit more difficult, a little more unsavory perhaps. Jesus and doing the same drinking, partying, and hooking up like before, because in Jesus I'm forgiven, right? Right? Jesus and fill in the blank for you. What is our tendency to add to the good news of Jesus? Because the problem with that is Jesus doesn't leave room for that. As we read the scriptures, it's never Jesus and. It is always and every time Jesus only. Jesus only. And anything that we are not willing to give up to follow Christ ends up being an addition to or an obstacle to us experiencing what God is offering us. And there will come a time, if it already hasn't happened, where there's a tension there. And that following after Jesus and holding on to what we want and trying to control that part of our lives that we want to control are in contrast with one another. And that we have to make a decision. And that is the decision, that's the the cost that Peter and John had already counted. That they had seen the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus And there was no turning back. There was no turning back. And as we pick up the passage again in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, we see the power and the change that has happened in in these men as as they preach to, as they share before the very people that crucified their leader, Jesus. So we pick it up in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That these men had been with Jesus. These were fishermen. These were ordinary, unschooled men with no prestige, with no background, with nothing by worldly standards or by societal standards that would have made them stick out or would have made them even worth listening to except that they had been with Jesus and they started doing these incredible things. And it was that and that alone, that witness with Jesus that is the crux of all this, that the religious leaders noted that they had been 
with Jesus. And he was with them still. As we read a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 1, Jesus came back. He offered his disciples the Holy Spirit. I give you the Holy Spirit and I fill you with power to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The presence of God with us through his Holy Spirit is what he gave Peter and John and what he offers anyone who would put their faith in Jesus. And it is that presence, that continued witness with Jesus, Jesus today and in our daily lives that let's make no bones about it gives gives us the power of God in our lives to see and experience the freedom he would offer us from sin and strongholds in our life but also to give us the life and vitality that we so desire but we hold on to so many things we look back and hold on to so many things that hold us back from the surrendered life The not easy life, it's a surrendered life, but the better life that Christ is offering us. So, okay, great, Dave, awesome. This this sounds compelling, this is wonderful. How? How do we access this incredible power, this incredible life that God is offering us in Jesus? A very simple word I would share with you is practice. Practice. Just like any relationship grows, it takes time, it takes commitment and investment and pursuing the other. Our relationship with God and our ability to, for him really to live through us and that relationship growing is simply done by practice. By continuing to practice meeting with and engaging with God in relationship. It's just like any athletic competition. Practice makes perfect. Practice and improving our skills and strength makes us better. As I said, I was at Friends Orange today. Their pastor, Jay, is going through through some incredibly difficult health issues, and yet he's training for an Ironman. He is training for an Ironman. He's already at marathon levels of running and is now pursuing the swimming. I believe it's two to two and a half miles of swimming. That's insane to me. That What that sounds like to me is trying really hard to swim for about a half mile and then drowning. Like there, there just is not happening in my life. It's not, swimming is not something that I do well. So he is running after this goal of doing an Ironman. I am doing Spartan races. A couple of my, couple of my tribesmen are, are here tonight, and I do Spartan races. It's nothing like an Ironman, albeit, but we, do, we run trails. We run a few miles on a trail, and they're, they're obstacle course races, so you get to do some really fun obstacles uh, along the way, challenging obstacles along the way. And there was one in particular that my first two races I missed and that, that really frustrated me, and that obstacle, what's one of the more difficult obstacles, that was my nemesis at first. I missed it my first two races, and I can remember being up there, just like he said, when you start, when you lose the chicken arm, and you go, oh no. Talk about a Jesus moment, was like, please help me get to the end, Jesus. This is not happening. And, and I, I missed it those first two times, but I was, I was resolved that this was not going to beat me. And quite simply, all I did was go back started doing some pull-ups every day to increase upper body strength, and I was able to go to a couple gyms that had this obstacle and practice a little bit and learned a better technique. I actually go backwards now, and it's been about 12 races since that I haven't missed it once. And so I share that with you again because as we look at seeking God, as we look at accessing the power that we have in God through his Holy Spirit, it's no different than just practicing. But what specifically are we practicing? We are practicing the presence of God. 
practicing the presence of God. There is a book, a very famous Christian book that goes by that exact title, Practicing the Presence of God. It's actually by a fellow by the name of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. He was a French monk. And I looked up on Google to try and find a, a picture of, of Brother Lawrence. But what I actually did is I, I call it a Freudian slip or whatever. I mixed up Brother Lawrence and I typed in the Lawrence brothers. And f- as a child of the 90s, the Lawrence brothers are the exact antithesis of Brother Lawrence, who is known for being poor, awkward, and disabled. The Lawrence brothers are known for being beautiful, intelligent, and incredibly talented. And again, I grew up my formative years in the 90s. This, this was actually kind of a really ironic, fun moment for me. Uh, the eldest brother there, uh, Joey, was in Blossom. Anyone remember Blossom from the early 90s? A couple of fans, sort of, kind of, maybe, I don't know. But Matthew in the middle there, the middle brother Matthew, that's my guy, because he was in Boy Meets World. And Boy Meets World, that, that, that was me and my friend's jam. We loved that. That was part of that, that, if anyone remembers, that lineup on ABC on Friday nights, of TGIF, they literally call it TGIF, me and my friends would get out of school, we'd go hang out, and we would get together just so that we could watch TGIF on Friday nights together. Got Boy Meets World, Step by Step, some of those great old school shows, right? And then Andrew, the youngest brother, was another 90s teen heartthrob and everything. So again, formative years meant a lot to me, but a really... I don't think in any way, shape, or form by accident, they are the exact opposite of the poor humility and yet incredible power that Brother Lawrence sought God with. As I said before, Brother Lawrence was a French monk, lived in the 16th century, and he, he was born to peasant parents of, of no renown, He was uneducated and therefore, as a peasant, was forced to fight in the Thirty Years' War, which is an incredibly vicious war in the history of France. And actually, he fought around his own village, and his village that he grew up in was completely and totally decimated by this war. And as the war ended, a couple things happened. First, that he had gotten injured, and he himself... Brother Lawrence was disabled, and he walked with a severe limp, a severe impediment of of his walking the rest of his life. And the atrocities that he had seen so hit his heart and just devastated him that he wanted nothing to do, really, with the world anymore. And so he was going to commit his life to God, and he went to live in a French monastery in Paris. And, of course, he was uneducated. He didn't have any seminary degrees, anything like that. He was the last person that they would have let be a part of of this monastery. So he just volunteered as just any old person. And the only thing he was qualified to do was to be the cook. So they let him be the cook. And actually after a while, his his limb that we he was his his leg that was disabled got gout, it got worse, and so he couldn't even stand to wash the dishes anymore. And so he had to become a sandal maker or a repairer of sandals. An incredibly simple man. In fact, he described himself in one of his letters as a great awkward fellow who broke everything. So, I mean, this is, you know, self, self-proclaimed. However, throughout his life, Brother Lawrence gained a reputation from his superiors as well as many in the community as someone with great wisdom, 
someone who, who lived out the incredible peace of God, the love of God with which he served, the selfless service, service which, which he gave to other people. And people would come from far and wide just to stand or sit, for that matter, with Brother Lawrence as he washed dishes, as he sat there and repaired sandals because he simply exuded, he, he overflowed the presence of God and the good things therein in his moment-by-moment, day-to-day life spent with God, just like Peter and John, with Jesus. Brother Lawrence knew what it meant to live life with Jesus. And his superiors, the monks that oversaw him, they were the ones that after he died actually put together some letters he had written as, and they recorded some conversations that they had had with him to put together this incredible work called practicing the presence of God that has affected generations and generations of Christians. To give you an idea of his perspective, of Brother Lawrence's perspective on seeking after God and dwelling moment by moment in his presence, I'm going to share with you a couple quotes from his book. He says this, the most holy and necessary practice in our spiritual life is the presence of God. That means finding constant pleasure in his divine company, speaking humbly and lovingly with him in all seasons at every moment without limiting the conversation in any way. That is his prayer was nothing else but a sense of the presence of God. His soul being at that time insensible to everything but divine love. And that when the appointed times of prayer were passed, he found no difference because he still continued with God, praising and blessing him with all his might so that he passed his life in continual joy, yet hoped, hoped that God would give him somewhat to suffer when he should grow stronger. What Brother Lawrence understood that far too many people miss is that what God is offering us is not some eternal destination, is not simply blessings in this life, is not a God-honoring morality. Those things are all part of it, but what God is offering us more than anything is himself. The reward for following Jesus is Jesus. He offers us himself. There is no greater portion, there is no greater treasure, there is no greater prize. That is, he is the prize and goal of our faith. And Peter and John Peter and John understood this, but it wasn't until they walked with Jesus, but it wasn't until he died and they lost him and that he returned and gave him his actual presence through the Holy Spirit that they began to understand, oh, you aren't going to give us political power, prestige, position, and bring Israel back to the forefront of the world's cultures, of the world's nations. What you're offering us is yourself is power, is transformation, is freedom, love, and life in you. Not from you, not as a blessing from you, but only in you, Jesus. As they express, as as we finish off our passage in verse 18 of Acts chapter four. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help 
but speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. After further threats, they let them go because they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And so many people, whether they know God or don't know God, they bring their expectations. They expect God to do something for them. Or they want something from God more than they want God himself. And they fall into, just as these religious leaders did, Jesus and. Jesus and. And completely miss what God is offering us. And what he's offering us, admittedly, is not easy Peter and John counted the cost. They saw God heal this lame beggar. They saw God do many more miraculous things, many more healings. Thousands upon thousands came to faith. People were risen from the dead. And yet, Peter was crucified upside down and John was exiled for the rest of his years. But they had seen the resurrected Jesus and experienced his power and love and truth flowing through them. And so for them, there was no turning back. Regardless of what may come against them, regardless of how they may suffer in this life, there was no turning back because they had found something better. And they could say, just as Jim and Elizabeth Elliot did, just as Brother Lawrence did along with them, the cross is before me. The world is now behind. No turning back. No turning back. And so, as the band comes up and we close out, this is, I guess, the question that I would pose to you. And as I was praying about this message, God showed me tonight that there, there are people here that he is, is reaching out to, that he is pursuing your heart tonight. And as we read earlier on in Acts, as the, the Holy Spirit came and was as a, a tongue of fire, is that there is a burning in some hearts tonight. And that's not the salsa from last night or indigestion, but that is the very God of the universe that is reaching out to you tonight. And it's not, I, I do not want you to miss this. Do not write it off as I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to do this, but I know I'm feeling something. I'm just going to put it off. God is reaching out and pursuing you tonight. Whether you're someone who's walked with God and knows who Jesus is as your Lord and Savior, consider yourself a Christian, but you know that there are things that you've held on to. There are obstacles to you experiencing more of what God has for, has for you because you refuse to let go of these things. You continue to just glance or look back and hold on to those things. Tonight, he's inviting you to say no to those and to say yes to him and to step into deeper what he is offering you. And then there are some of you here who have never put your faith in Jesus, who have never said, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I've done it my own way and I acknowledge that I need you and you alone. And the burning in your heart tonight is God pursuing you. That he wants to offer you something better. He wants to offer you eternal life, salvation, but most of all, himself. He wants you to know and be loved by him. Because in him, in Jesus and Jesus alone, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven and on earth by which men must be saved. It is Christ 
and Christ alone. And so I invite you now, as we, as we enter into a time of response, with every head bowed, with every eye closed, that those of you who God is reaching out to tonight, I ask you, I know it's uncomfortable, but to take the bold step and say yes to God, forsaking all else, leaving behind what is behind, to say yes to God and to boldly proclaim that he is the one that you want, he and he alone. And if that's you tonight, regardless of who is around you, regardless of what's going on, regardless of how you're feeling, with every eye closed, that you would raise your hand and say, I want Jesus and Jesus alone. There is none other for me. I know it's an uncomfortable step, but God is asking you tonight to respond, to step into himself, to step into what he has for you. And if so, if that's you tonight, I invite you to pray these words with me in just a moment. But we're gonna have some of our prayer team standing on the outside of the room. And as we go into this time of prayer, as this time of response, I invite you to stand up and boldly go and ask for prayer. Ask God to meet you tonight through his church. And so with that, with every, again, with every eye closed and every head bowed, I ask that you would repeat after me in your heart between you and God. Heavenly Father, I admit I have gone my own way and I have turned from you. I have run after my desires and the desires of this world instead of you. I ask for your forgiveness by the blood of Jesus. I now surrender my life to you and declare my commitment to follow you with all my life. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. My life is yours now, God. Have your way in me. Amen.